Welcome to Courage in Healthcare, a podcast sponsored by Maxworth Consulting Group. I'm your host, Kyle Worthy. COVID-19 has altered our world in many ways. Members of the healthcare community have overcome unforeseen challenges and, in the process, have learned a lot about what it takes to see their patients and their practices through a worldwide pandemic. In our next few episodes, we'll be speaking with providers about the outbreak. We'll discuss the setbacks they've had to handle, the lessons they've learned, and what the future might hold for healthcare and physician practices. Today, we speak with Dr. Ben Finkenshire, an emergency room physician from Chesapeake, Virginia. Dr. Finkenshire successfully implemented an innovative opioid use disorder treatment program in his healthcare system. In this episode, he speaks with us about the creation of the program, its early success, and how the coronavirus has impacted opioid use disorder treatment in his community and in the United States. Well, Dr. Fingisher, thank you so much for being with us today. Why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work with uh, opioid treatment? Sure, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I'm an emergency medicine physician living in southeastern Virginia, and um, not unlike every state in the nation, we've, we've had a significant um, pandemic with opiates uh, since the, the mm-hmm. kind of 20-teens, the beginning of uh, 2010 and on. And um, so, so as an emergency medicine physician, uh, I was really kind of front and center and watching the whole thing develop. I was training during the time uh, between 2005 and 2008 when this thing was really ramping up and prescription opiates were becoming um, really prevalent and being pushed really hard by pharmaceutical manufacturers and being freely written. Scripts were being freely written by docs. And that's really where we launched uh, a transition in the opioid problem that the nation has, has faced for a very long time in the 60s. However, it was people who used heroin started by using heroin. They were people who were looking to um, use drugs recreationally and then became uh, addicted and um, Mm -hmm. couldn't stop. Whereas uh, what we saw in the early to early 2000s to mid 2007 through 10 was a transition where where 80 percent of people uh, who used opiates or used heroin got their start with prescription pills. And um, a great wow. many of those were given legitimate prescriptions for legitimate complaints um, and just became addicted. So as I came through um, training and then my early career, it was really a battle. Uh, there was such a problem that uh, coming to work each day, you could almost rest assured that you were going to have at least one confrontation with a patient who was demanding a prescription for opiates. Um, and it really was just that. It was confrontational, and it wasn't the right doctor-patient relationship um, mm-hmm. that it should have been. And so I started to become aware of the need for for doing something different. And um, Thankfully, other people had come to that conclusion as well. And Mm. um, it started with uh, developing a pain management protocol, a a policy that governed the way that we used opiates and prescribed opiates. Um, And as we did that, uh, the CDC actually came out with their recommendations for uh, appropriate opioid uses. And our our policy that that I had created at our health system 
really paralleled that quite well. But then you recognize that that was very much uh, continued the conflict between patient and physician. It, it allowed us or it gave us some backbone to say, no, we're not going to write you prescriptions. And, and this is why we have a policy. Um, mm-hmm. But it did nothing to help those who were struggling with the disease of opioid um, addiction. And so I started to become aware then that we needed to do something not only to prevent creating new addicts, which was what the opioid uh, prescribing policy was aimed at, but um, instead to also make sure that we were helping those who were struggling with addiction um, to help find a way out for them. So tell me a little bit about the discovery process for you in trying to uh, seek out you know, alternative methodologies and alternative treatment models. Um, how did you go about that? And what was that process like? Well, really, it, frankly, was uh, I benefited from those people around me. It wasn't, uh, it was kind of very organic in the way that it happened. And and I just started meeting people who, who were passionate about it the way I was. And they kept introducing me to different avenues and different people. And uh, so my partner here at Chesapeake Regional Healthcare was Kurt Hooks. And he was the director of behavioral health. And he very much felt the same way I did. And we began talking, and then we met Stephanie Peglow, who was with Eastern Virginia Medical School, and she had been at Yale, uh, New Haven, when they had done their trials of a program to um, to introduce Suboxone therapy coupled with a, um, a, a brief intervention in the emergency department, and then a, a warm handoff to treatment providers in the community to continue the medically assisted therapy and uh, counseling. So they had, they had uh, done these studies and trials at Yale and she had been there during that time. And so she was able to talk uh, fluently about what they had done and what their results were. And she was uh, very energetic and excited about what they were able to offer there. Um, it was subsequent to that that I met uh, Chathan Baccaretti, who at the time was uh, the director of public health at, for uh, Virginia's Medicaid program. And he had been at Yale, and then he was he carried on that work at University of Pennsylvania. Um, so it was really just kind of I was very fortunate to be led down a path and meet some great individuals. And, um, and then I started doing research on my own and I found a physician out in Oakland in California who was doing similar stuff, but had come to, uh, come to his protocol and through an avenue that was not associated with Yale. And so he had a different perspective, although it, it meshed nicely with Yale. So because we weren't running a trial of sorts, because I wasn't um, a researcher, I was just trying to pr- create a program that was going to provide the most benefit. Um, I was able to pick and choose from various programs and then okay. uh, put together something that I thought was going to work best for our, our department and our patient population. Well, it's great that your hospital uh, supported you uh, in, in this search. What was that like? And tell us about implementing this uh, new program. Well, I I was really fairly nervous about the whole thing when we mm-hmm. started to to approach this because I thought that we were going to get all kinds of pushback. This was probably uh, you know opioid use disorder, uh, all the stigma around opioid use disorder, and um, I was worried that this was going to be looked at as. Uh, 
you know, a program that they didn't want their name on, uh, speaking about the health system. And mm-hmm. I was worried that my, my colleagues in the emergency department would view this as kind of a, a neon sign outside the department calling in, you know, beckoning all opioid addicts oh, yeah. and, and okay. <laughs> kind of indicating that our doors were open and that we would, can, we would do whatever we could to help, well, that we would help them, but that it would create this revolving door of, of opiate addicts coming to our mm-hmm. department. Um, and quite, uh, quite to my surprise, our health system really was um, on board from the very beginning. I had a meeting with all the executives and they were all fairly energetic about it. And I think that has a lot to do with the mission of Chesapeake Regional and and, um, providing support to the community. And uh, so they were excited. And then there there was some concern on the part of colleagues, uh, but everybody kind of understood the the mission. And Mm -hmm. we were aimed with uh, research that showed that it really did not create a revolving door of people seeking opiates um, and and actually decreased visits. And so everybody really quickly came on board. And then you asked about implementation. That took mm-hmm. forever. Uh, it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> having never done something like this before. Just you don't realize how many, with every change in healthcare, um, and my my special view on on the emergency department, with every policy that you implement, you have various uh, players that you touch and you impact. From for for example, for this program, social workers and care managers and the pharmacy and uh, providers and nurses and the patients and and payers. And just trying to, there was no way when I started this that I could really fathom how many pieces of this puzzle existed and trying to lay them all into place was, it was quite difficult um, while, while continuing to try to work full time and, and uh, attend mm-hmm. to my other obligations. Mm-hmm. So um, can you speak a little bit uh, about the program success, particularly the program's success I'll call it uh, pre-COVID-19. What did that look like for you guys? Um, So we had had implemented it in March of 2019, and we had hoped at the time that we would get about two patients per month enrolled. And uh, so as of June, which was the last numbers that we pulled, um, uh, we had had 50 um, mm-hmm. enrolled. And so that's, you know, it's over three a month. So, mm-hmm. and, um, some of that obviously March, April, May, June spans time of COVID. And there was a real drop off for a couple months as people, mm-hmm. uh, didn't want to be in the emergency department and exposed to the virus. So, um, I would say that we were very successful and, and I'm, I'm really proud of the numbers. Um, and I think when you look at the numbers and you think about it critically, it is really amazing what, um, what it says about opioid use disorder. It's just a cross section of society. We have, mm-hmm. um, employed people, unemployed people. We have, uh, I think that the, the numbers for, um, whites and, um, people of color is right along what you would expect based on percentages in the population. Um, males and females were fairly equal. So, uh, it, it's been successful and it's clear that it's reaching everyone rather than just one subset of the population. 
I'm sure that's really impacted just your approach to going into the emergency department every day. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that is uh, the success of the program has uh, impacted your work? So it's really been, I think uh, it's made things, um, once you understand the, the protocol and the process and all of the people that are in place to help us uh, implement the protocol when, when we're in the emergency department, it's really made things easier, especially when you think about the interaction with patients who, who have an opioid use disorder, um, mm-hmm. because it empowers you to give them, um, to offer them help, to offer them options. Uh, so, so take, for example, this vignette, and this was not at all uncommon before we started the program. Uh, a patient, let's say it's a, a male patient, um, comes in, the uh, paramedics have been called to the scene, they find him not breathing, and they bring him into the emergency department, um, and he's either received Narcan uh, pre-hospital or he's received it, uh, or he gets it once it's in, he's in the emergency department, and he starts mm-hmm. breathing again, and he, he awakens, and um, not only is he keenly aware that something really bad happened, um, but he's also in withdrawal um, from mm-hmm. the Narcan. So he feels miserable. He's shaky. He's nauseated. Perhaps he's vomiting. And, mm-hmm. and, but at the same time, he's aware that he just died and, and was given a second or maybe third or fourth chance. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I know this makes it sound dramatic, but it's really was not, um, unusual that shortly thereafter, uh, a significant other, a girlfriend or a wife would show up at the bedside often with their, you know, fairly newborn baby and everybody's crying. And what did we do? We, mm-hmm. we gave them some nausea medicine and ultimately we said, goodbye, you're discharged. Good luck. Say no to drugs. Hope this doesn't happen again. And they'd leave. And, and by the next morning, you know, so they've got this conviction that they want to stop. They're done. They didn't, they almost lost everything. Um, and uh, by the next morning, uh, the desire to use, the need to use um, is so intense that they forget that moment uh, or that moment is lost. So, so this program allows us to go to the bedside, whether it's something dr- as dramatic as an overdose or it's somebody who's in withdrawal who has just decided enough is enough and they're done. Um, this allows us to approach them and say, hey, there is help and we can take care of you this evening, but not just this evening. We can put a protocol in place to get you help on an ongoing basis and to give you hope. And, and that's been really empowering. That's terrific. Wow. Um, so obviously COVID-19 has impacted a lot of aspects of healthcare. Uh, and so how has that uh, in the pandemic and the closures in the community, how has that really impacted your work with, uh, opioid use disorder patients? Uh, it, it really made it kind of, um, a little bit uh, scary first in the beginning one we saw the we saw volumes in the emergency department decrease 40 percent across the board um Mm. come april and and it was really crazy kyle like in on the 21st or 22nd of march i was working and the faucet just turned off uh Mm. we we just had an empty board in the emergency department and people weren't showing up and they were scared, they were terrified of this new virus and that they would come to the emergency department and, and contract it and die. And so that carried through into April and May. 
And along with just our general population, we saw opioid uh, use disorder patients not showing up. And, and so I was nervous about what was happening. And, um, mm-hmm. and I also was concerned because with all the closures, I was really worried that all of these, um, that our community partners, people who were providing medically assisted mm-hmm. treatment um, and counseling were going to shut their doors and that people would be, you know, lost again. And um, so I was really anxious about that. And, and it was at a time, right, where we, we really could not, uh, it, it was like the, the worst um, uh, scenario because mm-hmm. not only, uh, you know, did these opioid use uh, disorder patients not um, suddenly become cured, but, but think about what happened with COVID and the shutdown. People were losing their jobs. People right. were dealing with horrible anxiety. People were dealing with joblessness and homelessness and hunger. And, and what happens when, when you have a situation like that? You have depression, and, and with depression comes a seeking of treatment for that depression. And often um, self-treatment includes use of substances. And so mm-hmm. um, it was really a, a, a bad time. And we fortunately have been able to convince the community that the emergency department is taking the right, the right mitigation strategies and efforts. And so it's a safe place to come. And we've seen numbers come back up to kind of pre COVID numbers, as far as our uh, program uh, for opioid use disorder. Mm. And so that's heartening. Um, I'm afraid that it doesn't really reflect uh, how many people have probably gone back to using opioids. Um, but it's also very interesting to look at the the national numbers, and I've talked to some um, DEA agents, and they found that there's been a decrease in the supply. Um, mm. That as the cartels are disrupted by this virus, as the shipping channels uh, have been disrupted by the virus, that we're not having the same amount of supply here, and um, and that's good. But it also uh, makes me nervous about what our next wave might be. Will we see a resurgence of opioids? Will we see, you know, will they double down on fentanyl? Um, mm-hmm. Or are we going to see uh, the next wave be something different? And I think we're seeing some inklings that methamphetamines may be the next big thing. Um, and that makes me really nervous. Did you have to change uh, your program's response? Is, was there any changes to how you approached your day-to-day activity because of the virus, perhaps? Or did you kind of just continue on and, and then, help, you know, and, and try to serve the people that were already enrolled? Like, what was that like for you guys? Yeah, it was it was really trying to seek out and find out whether our usual channels, uh, so so the way that the program runs is that mm-hmm. The patient comes in, they either come in because they they want help or they come in as an overdose patient or through the course of our um, interaction with them, we, we discover that they have an opioid use disorder. And, 
and one of the things that we try to really um, stress through through putting this program in place is that anyone is empowered to speak up and indicate that they think somebody's got a problem, right? So, so it's you know we 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 encourage the patients to speak up. We listen to family and friends when they speak up. Um, but but even our uh, environmental services workers, if they're outside the room and they hear somebody talking and they realize that this person, you know, is, has got an an issue, we've encouraged them to speak up. And so we try to, we identify patients as having an opioid use disorder. We, we get an assessment of their willingness to seek help and to break the cycle of, of uh, dependency. And then we provide them with support and encouragement and we begin them, uh, we begin suboxone therapy, which is buprenorphine, um, with, with naloxone. And, um, and then what we do there is we, after we get them out of withdrawal, after we make them more comfortable, we do what's called a warm handoff. So based on their payer status, whether they, they have um, resources or not, and whether they have insurance or not, we try to pair them with the the best program in the community for them based on where they live, what bus route they're on, you know, their financial status, et cetera. And, um, and then we provide them with a prescription for the next five days while they make an appointment and our community partners have, um, have agreed to make sure that they get, uh, an, an appointment within 72 hours. And so we, we do this warm handoff to the community partners and, uh, they begin their ongoing treatment at that community partner within 72 hours. And, and we've had a great success with retention in that program. So, so when COVID hit, it, it was trying to figure out which of our community partners were still going to be up and running, how they were going to manage opioid use disorder patients, um, and and thinking that the the person who's just beginning treatment, um, who really hasn't been stabilized yet, um, just a prescription and a five minute phone call probably was not going to be sufficient as far as we were concerned. Um, and so, very fortunately, it was around that time that that our um, community services board called Chesapeake Integrated Behavioral Healthcare, they were able to stand up their their OBOT and, um, their, their, um, their treatment center. So what that did for us, um, was it gave us another resource, but, but more importantly, that since they have state funding, it gave us, um, the ability to service all patients, regardless of their ability to pay. And that was really the goal from the very beginning. And the fact Mm -hmm. that, this came that they came online at the same time that COVID and all of the downstream financial consequences were coming online um, was really a blessing. Man, that's that's terrific, and doing doing you're doing some great work. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with other organizations and providers uh, about your program that you would think that would be you know beneficial? Well. <laughs> You know, I think that sharing with the general public that mm-hmm. um, that just an awareness of opioid use disorder that that the reason we we use opioid use disorder rather than uh, opiate addiction or or something is to try to break the stigma around it. I think it, to accept it as a disease, to accept it, you know, as something that most people feel helpless 
um, to confront and, and, and it's a cycle that they find helpless to get out of. Um, and that given those numbers that, that the vast majority of people who use, uh, drugs, illicit drugs or, or, or opiates got their start with a prescription and yeah, maybe it, they stole it out of their grandmother's, um, uh, medicine cabinet, but, but, a, a great many of them got a legitimate prescription from a physician. And so they weren't looking to go down this road, but they found themselves, you know, in this battle, uh, that they felt helpless to get out of. And so I think recognizing that it's a disease, it's not a moral failing, it's not a lack of willpower, um, but also recognizing that everybody is at risk. And so we as a society, and one of my, one of my the thrusts of what I've tried to do in my community outreach is to educate people on the fact that they're really a goal of having injury and illness without free from pain is, is not a goal that I think we should have. Um, that I think that's where we were in the early two thousands, where if you sprained your ankle, um, our goal was to get your pain level to a zero. And to do that, we were using powerful medications that, that came with an a huge risk of addiction and dependency. Mm. Um, and so trying to educate providers that, that um, opioids should be a second line or third line prescription, it shouldn't be first line, um, trying to educate uh, our patients and their families that Tylenol and ibuprofen really are good medications. Um, they really do control pain fairly well. Couple that with ice and immobilization and most, most, injuries can be managed without opiates. Um, and so, so I think that people need to, to really listen to that message and take it to heart because um, the risk of addiction is real and, and what it looks like is horrible. Um, for organizations that are listening, yeah, I, I, I think that this is not a difficult program, you know, to implement if you just use um, some of the efforts that, uh, those of us uh, kind of who got on this early, um, you know, use our efforts to your advantage. Uh, it, sure, it takes some some coordination, but a lot of the kinks have been worked out. I I, I now know a lot of the um, the hurdles that exist, and I know how to circumvent them. So, reach out to to organizations that have implemented programs because we're we're more than willing to help. And and so I would hurt. You know, Kyle, I would hold myself out personally, and you're welcome to share my email address and um, be happy to to work with um, with organizations, whether that's through just providing some some insight and answering some questions to um, engaging, you know, coming on site and taking a look at things. Man, that's terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Finkenshire. I appreciate your time today and uh, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks, Kyle. Been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Courage in Healthcare. We look forward to sharing more perspectives on the pandemic from various providers in the upcoming weeks. For more information on Dr. Fickenshire's program, please let me know. I'll be happy to share his contact information with you. I'm sure he'd be more than happy to speak with you. And again, if you or someone that you know would like to share your insights about the pandemic, please let me know. I'd be happy to set up a call. Until then, I'm Kyle Worthy from Maxworth Consulting Group.